Thank you. Let's pray one more time. Kind Father, as we come and uh, we ask that you would come and speak to us through your word and through the words proclaimed, help us to, to hear, to understand, to know, uh, and to, to experience your, your grace that's at work uh, among us and in us and through us and with us and for us, that you would receive all glory and honor and praise. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So today we are going to be concluding our, our three-week series um, about having joy through, through life's hardships. Uh, and today in particular, we're maybe dealing with the most pressing one of, of having joy through suffering. And at some point, at some time, we are going to suffer. And perhaps even now, there's some suffering either psychologically or, or physically, and, and wondering, if is, is it possible that you can actually have joy in the midst of these times? Paul Brand, a, uh, he's an orthopedic surgeon who, he was, he's the one who discovered that Hansen's disease, or, or otherwise known as, as leprosy, was not a, uh, a disease of, of the tissue. A lot of people thought it was, that they would see people who had Hansen's disease and they'd see uh, wild and massive deformities. But he realized that what was really happening was that, well, it was the nerves of the person that were being desensitized to pain. They were unable to feel pain and unable to get treatment and unable to stop the, the problems that were happening. And so many people were becoming very, very, you know, disformed and uh, he spent well, much of his career in India treating people with, with such a disease, and in the later part of his career, he moved to America. And he writes in, in the book, his, you know, The Gift of Pain, about the difference between treating people in America, in the United States, versus treating people in India and elsewhere in the world. And he writes that, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients live at greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. In, in treating the people who have the, perhaps the most comfort of anywhere in the world, and yet when they have to deal with, with some pain, even if it's less, are un, unable, ill-equipped to actually deal with it. And rather than just being a physically debilitating or, or hurtful thing, it becomes a psychologically debilitating thing. And why is that? Well, he goes on to talk about how in the United States, in America, we often struggle and have a hard time understanding, well, what's life's purpose? And how do we fit into that? And we have very fragile ideas of what life's purpose is, that life in essence, is about pleasure and personal freedom. And as we go through suffering, it erodes all of that. There's no place for suffering in, in, a, in a world where what I'm, what I'm supposed to do and to be is to garner pleasure. And when suffering comes and, and reduces my, my freedom and my ability to do what I want and live life as I please, well, well, it doesn't just erode my, my physical ability. It erodes my purpose, who I am, 
My whole identity is, well, it's taken and destroyed by it. And so as he's looking at people in the United States, well, he, he realizes that, that the story in which we, in which we rehearse our, you know, who we are and, and how we cope with suffering is, is inadequate. And all of us, as we go through suffering, we put it into some sort of story. Some are better than others. But all of us have a story. Today, I have a, a, a really, I'd say, a long introduction, probably too long, longer than they tell you that it should be. Um, and as, you know, just to set up, you know, where we are in, in the world as we, before we even enter into text. And all of us have these stories of what suffering is about. And if we look across the world, I can, well, largely summarize, you know, the three stories of the world in regards to suffering. In karma, craving, and chaos. Karma, you know, uh, you may have heard it, you know, we talk about instant, instant karma, and those are like those fun YouTube videos where people get what they deserve, and we all kind of rejoice, and even though we're not supposed to. But it's basically that, you know, bad things happen to bad people. And if it seems like you're not a bad person, it's because in a former life you were, and so you're really getting what you deserve. There's not evil. There's a cosmic justice that works its way. And if you're suffering, you deserve it. And while, you know, there's some good in this, you know, to take, you know, to take stock that, hey, I need to, you know, sometimes I bring on my own suffering. Oftentimes it, it causes us to, to ignore the, the plight of the, the hurtest, those under the wheel of injustice, because we can always just say, hey, they deserved it. This is popularized in, you know, in, in you know, the Hindu religion, right? And it's, it requires there to be some sort of reincarnation. And then there's craving. Those who, who practice Buddhism, they have this idea that, that suffering itself is an illusion. Evil is an illusion. All of it has to do with my desires. And if I didn't desire things, I wouldn't suffer. And certainly in the West, we could probably hear this word where many of our, our sufferings do come from our desires that are, well, lusts after things that we shouldn't have. You know, I knew a girl who, you know, she was so stressed out and in some ways would suffer through school because she had these expectations that it needed to be perfect so she could get into the right college and get into the right uh, job. And if she failed, if she slipped up once, she would wind up homeless and on the streets. It was perhaps, well, it was definitely an exaggeration of, of reality, but yet, at some level, it was this, this constant pressure because she had these, these desires that were up here about what her life was supposed to be, and she was you know, having to strive to get it, and so she suffered. And while this is a, probably a good word for many of us to, to realize that we should not be led by our emotions, but we should lead them, in many ways, it's inadequate to deal with, well, the deep suffering of those under, you know, being abused and tormented and, and hurt. At the end of the day, it's in some ways a, a victim blaming. Get your act together and you're not going to feel this way. And then there's chaos. And this is probably the most popular one here in the West. 
It's from the secularists who, who say, you know, suffering, it just happens. It's because we are a cosmic accident floating through space. You know, nature red in tooth and claw, and, you know, sometimes we just suffer. It's chaotic out there. And in so, there is no meaning, there's no purpose. If there's any redemption, it's because you make it for yourself. And in some ways, we can recognize that there is truth to this. There is a chaotic element to this world. That doesn't mean that the people who suffer are, are worse people, like the karmic explanation would, or that there's something wrong with them, like the, the Buddhist explanation would, would impose. You know, sometimes people suffer, and they suffer unjustly. A few years ago, there was these you know, terrible tornadoes that were you know, that swept through southern Kentucky, and there was a, a member of my, my former church whose who's son and daughter-in-law were living right there, and you know, for, for you know, weeks and months, we were praying for them because they suffered a, a terrible blow as, the, as the, the wife was in the hospital, pregnant with her child. Ultimately, she would succumb to, to these injuries, and a few weeks later, their, their child, who had, you know, was came out through an emergency C-section, would also succumb. Is there anything wrong about them? Anything worse about them that would bring on this? No, I don't, I don't think so. They suffered under, well, because sometimes bad things happen. And all these explanations that the world offers, karma, craving, and chaos, all of them at some level deny evil. They deny evil exists. Right? Karma, there's not evil that makes us suffer. You know, it's just, it's cosmic justice. Buddha, you know, Buddhism is, is, it's not, it's not, evil, it's this illusion because of our cravings. And the chaos, the, the, the vision of the secularists will say, no, it's not real, it's evil, it's just nature. We can't blame nature for being it, we are just a cosmic accident. It, it can be to our displeasure, but ultimately there's no judge, you know, there's no standard to which we're, we are comparing this to which reality falls short it is what it is. And against the backdrop of these, we have a fourth explanation, a fourth story to encompass our sufferings, one that realizes and accepts evil in its, in its fullness, that it's a real thing, that it's, a, it, it, it's an evil thing, it's a denounceable thing, but yet at the same time offers hope and redemption. And against the backdrop of karma and chaos and craving, there is Christ. Christ and his story, the model and the exemplar, the forerunner for our stories. And so we read in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to, your bulletins are wrong and that's my fault, um, starting at verse 6, perhaps one of the most famous passages, and if you're using your pew Bible, it's on 1196, and here is, I'd say, the centerpiece of, of the, this, this letter, as he talks about Christ's story. Christ, verse 6, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, or he emptied himself. By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. 
And being found in the appearance of the man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. We are given the story of Christ, the God-man, the one who was in some ways removed from the pain and suffering of this world, but yet entered into it, emptying himself of his divine privileges, his omnipotence, his ability to not suffer, to come into our world, and not only come into our world, to come in at the lowest, to come in as a slave or a servant, and to die a slave's death on the cross. He came into our suffering, and he experienced it. But that's not the end of his story, is it? Therefore, we read, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Christ, the model for the people of God, the one who came into our existence, who suffered, and yet there's this massive therefore that happens to his life. Therefore, he is exalted. Therefore, God is glorified. And this, this forms the, the basis for our Christian hope in the midst of suffering. The Christ who went before us and suffered, therefore was exalted, therefore glorified the Father, therefore we, we who follow in the ways of Jesus, have likewise, can do likewise. And in so doing, we find hope and joy in the midst of suffering. So then Paul goes on, read with me, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul continues his, uh, his, his writing to the church of Philippi and, and ultimately calling them to rejoice in, in his sufferings as well as their own. And why is this? Well, because of the model that Christ has, has given for us in his own sufferings. The second therefore that he talks about, right? We, Alex Motyer, the, the scholar, he, he writes, you know, that God's therefore in verse 9 about how Christ who emptied himself and suffered and even unto obedience on the cross, it gives way to the Christians therefore. And that, in a nutshell, what this passage is about, just as God assessed and reacted to the worth of his son's life of obedience, so the Christian must ponder the example of Christ and determine upon a worthy response. And what is that worthy response? What does he say? Well, therefore, verse 12, 
as you have obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to fulfill his good purposes. And for the Christian, for the Christian to be able to, to go through suffering, to go through a, a time, a period of trial, and to have joy in the midst of it, there, there's one key element that we must have and it's perhaps the most resistible element that's demanded of us. That life is not about you. That my life is about something more important than myself. That's part of a story that's greater than my own personal comfort, my own pleasure, my own personal freedom. Because those are the things that are eroded by suffering. But what, does, what is the hope of the gospel? It's the hope that your story is going to be connected to God's story and that you, you have a purpose that goes beyond your own personal life and satisfaction. And, it's, and paradoxically, it ends up adding to your satisfaction when you realize it. He says, you know, God is doing a work to what? Fulfill his good purpose. Just as he did with Christ, and so he does with his people. Just as Christ was exalted through suffering, so his people who follow after him will be as well. And in this, we can rejoice. And so in suffering, I can rejoice in God's purposes in me. God is doing a work in me through suffering. Read with me again, verses 14 through 16a. He says, Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Do you hear the, the, the purposes that he wants to have happen in his people? The fulfillment of God's work, his good purposes in them, is to what? That they become blameless and pure and children of God. That there's something that suffering offers that could not be had apart from it. That within suffering, within trials, it's not a sign of God's abandonment for the Christian. No, no. It's a sign of God's work in them to produce something in us, to transform us, to do some, some great work. But in suffering, we realize that, well, our temptation is to take our eyes off of God and put them on ourselves, isn't it? It's the impulse to become, in some ways, narcissistic, to, gaze, to, to be you know, so immersed in our own suffering that we, that we lose sight of the things that God is doing. And so what does he tell his people to do? Don't grumble. Or argue. That, which is oftentimes the first thing that we do, isn't it? When we suffer, we grumble and argue and complain and murmur. 
and we justify it. I just have to vent. Or we brag about it. I'm someone who just tells it as it is. Or we utilize it. I'm just speaking truth to power. Or we, it's our way of trying to connect with others or to share ourselves. Or we justify it as I'm just being authentic. Or we utilize it to accrue sympathy that we would be viewed better. All those things are these temptations, but they, they really, they, they flow out of a, well, a, a life that's consumed with, our, with, with ourselves. And we're giving away the inheritance that, that God offers us. That in our suffering, God is wanting to do something, but yet when we are well, fixated on grumbling and complaining and arguing, what we're doing is we're giving away what God wants to do in order to fixate and focus on ourselves. And com complaining will ultimately make you feel worse. There's a, there's a study in, in 2015 um, about how you know, those who complain end up making themselves mi more miserable for up to days later. The author Evangelina Demaruti, she writes, discussing events immediately during or after they occur forces the brain to relive or rehearse the negative emotional response. This creates a stronger association in memory, exaggerating the influence of the emotional episode. While we're tempted to go and to complain and to grumble and to whine and to murmur, ultimately what we're doing is we're, we're compounding the issue in ourselves. And so Paul says, don't complain. Don't complain. And throughout the New Testament, they, they actually call us to rejoice in our sufferings. Because in them, God is doing a work. God is transforming his people. God is transforming you in them, a work that he could not do otherwise. You know, when you're doing something like, uh, you know, driving or, or skiing, and um, you, perhaps you're going through a, a place where you feel like you're, you're losing control and you're in some, some terrain that you're having a hard time developing, the easiest thing to do, the natural thing, is often to look right ahead of you of where you are so that you can navigate it best. But ultimately, the way to get out of such situations is to look where you want to go. And in some ways, it feels unnatural, but yet that is what actually ends up helping you get to the place where you need to be. When we grumble, what we're doing is we're, we're fixated on, on you know, this, the moment that's right in here in front of us, hoping that that's going to help us navigate it. But ultimately, what we need to do is to lift our eyes up. Lift our eyes to the thing that's happening, that thing that God is about and doing in our midst. And in that, we can rejoice. So in suffering, I can rejoice in God's work in me, but I can also rejoice in God's work through me. As Paul writes, he's, he's writing and he's calling the people to be a different kind of wilderness people. Verses, you know, the 14 through 16a that we read, you know, it, it combines several different passages of the Old Testament that Paul kind of all brings together in order to make this point. 
the grumbling and complaining and arguing, you know, it's an obvious reference to those who were the people of Israel as they're walking through the wilderness or walking through the desert and they're constantly grumbling and complaining. Now, as somebody who's gone through, you know, our kids multiple times, you know, and gone through the, the Bible story, uh, there's always a moment as we're reading through the wilderness generation, you know, those who came out of Egypt and were walking through the wilderness in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, where for the umpteenth time, it'll say, well, the people of Israel again complained. And one of our kids at some point is going to be like, again? Right? Because it's this constant theme. You know, they're, despite the ways that God has helped them, the, the ways that God has redeemed them, the blessing that God has given to them, ultimately, they can't ever see past their own well, issues. And they complain. And they grumble. And then by the end of Deuteronomy, Moses writes in chapter 32, you know, that they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. This is what Paul is writing. He's like, listen, this is what you're not to be. Don't be like them. You're called to be a different kind of wilderness generation. As you walk your way through this world that's often filled with suffering, don't be like them who forfeited their inheritance. Rather, rather be like those who are proclaimed in Daniel. And so he writes, or he references Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3, this eschatological, this end-time judgment of the people of God. That ultimately, these people who have suffered, you know, these people who are in exile and forgotten by the world and despised by the world, ultimately, they come, you know, they come under the judgment of God. And, and those, verse 3 in Daniel 12, who are wise, they shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turned many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. When he's calling his people that they will be shine like the stars in the backdrop of a crooked and perverse generation. What he's saying is, you know, there within your suffering, God's not only doing a work in you, he is doing a work through you to reach the world, to bring many to righteousness. That your purposes are not done or hindered through, through your suffering, but your purposes are actually enhanced through your suffering. Polycarp, he was an early church father, and he you know, in the um, late first century, early second century, and, and he, he writes that, you know, Christians have used suffering to argue the superiority of their creed because they suffer better than the pagans. For, for him, the suffering of the Christian is the, the evangelistic emphasis, the evangelistic thrust of the Christian, that we suffer better why do we suffer better? Because we can suffer with joy. Because we can suffer with our eyes fixed and, and firmly planted on, the, on who we are in the, in the Christian story of a God who redeems and renews and restores us in our suffering. That we are not lost or forgotten or, or pushed aside in our suffering, but no, 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 no. That in our suffering, God is is utilizing it for his good purposes. That we are not forgotten or unloved or made less than. That 
whenever we suffer, that God is at work in that. God is at work in us and through us, and ultimately, God is at work for us. Very oftentimes, we forget this as a Christian, particularly in the West. We have a tendency to love safety. We have, you know, we, we make safety sometimes our, our highest priority because we've bought into the ways of the world that views our identity and our purpose about pleasure and personal freedom. I remember a few years back listening to, to someone pray for some missionaries who are, you know, ministering overseas, and the entire time the, the prayer was, Lord, just keep them safe, keep them comfortable, help, you know, nothing bad to ever happen to them, and nothing in the prayer was about God, encourage them by your spirit. Help them love you more. Help the gospel to go forth through them. Reach the people through their ministry. And while Jesus' name may have been tacked on at the end, it was far from a Christian prayer. It gave up our inheritance of a God who is at work in and through and with us in our sufferings. A God who is near to us in them and a God who redeems us within them. We are called to hold fast to the word of life. The word that gives us life in the midst of the, the, this world's trials and tribulations and persecutions. Rather than give ourselves to grumbling and complaining in this you know, myopic and self-consumed focus, to hold fast onto Jesus, the one who does a work. And Paul writes in uh, 16b through, through 18, that if they do these things, well then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not ru- run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and re- rejoice with me. As Paul suffers, you know, we've talked for the past couple weeks, he's in prison, he's awaiting trial, he may die, he thinks he's probably going to live this time, but he may die. But as he's looking forward to that day, he does not go into despair or, you know, self-consumed, but he says, you know, in all this, I will rejoice, and you should rejoice too. Because for Paul, the, the full work of Christ is at the forefront. The day of judgment, the day when God makes all things right. When God fulfills his good purposes in his people. That even as, you know, that Christ who suffered and was an exalted, that his, God's people who suffer will be exalted. That God's people who go through trials, who hold fast to Christ, who fix their eyes on him, that, that we too are glorified. That we too are exalted. That we too see the, the goodness of his purposes as we are able to, to take a to look from the well, outside of our own, own area and have this broad view of all that God has accomplished, even through our suffering. It's not wasted. Remember reading a story of a, a while back of a, um, of a of a father who's trying to console his, his baby, baby child who had that surgery the next day. And because of the surgery, he was not able to eat 
the entire day before. You know, and as a baby, he, you know, obviously doesn't understand why, you know, it just knows I'm hungry and I'm going to cry until I get some food. And as the father is trying to console his baby who's, you know, feels like it's starving, crying out, crying out, you know, tears in his eyes, and he says, listen, I know you don't understand, but I'm doing this for you. I know you can't comprehend, but this is for your good. As we look forward to the judgment day of Christ and all that God is going to do as he makes all things right, that he turns what was meant for evil and changes it to good on a global scale, but also in our individual lives, that that God reveals the fullness of his good pleasure, we're going to realize that, you know, just like that baby boy, I didn't realize it at the time. I couldn't comprehend. But God meant it for good. God was not absent. God was doing something for my, that was right for me. That in our suffering, God wants to do a unique work. And as we view ourselves within the Christian story and we see ourselves within, within this, this great work where it's not about me, but it's about God fulfilling all his purposes, what we see is that we can indeed have joy in the midst of our sufferings. Because in them, we're still fulfilling all that God has called us to, to do and to be. We're seeing the work of God in us and through us to proclaim his excellences to the nations. And we are awaiting the goodness of God's work for us. And so as the people of God, what we ought to do, what we ought to be is to cultivate being a people of rejoicing. To refuse to give ourselves to grumbling. To refuse to give ourselves to complaining. But in everything, we rejoice. We give thanks we look up from our own pains and, and displeasures and discomforts and say, God is at work, and right here and right now, God's doing a work. To fix our eyes on Jesus in such moments. And so doing, what we will find is joy. Now, I'd like to invite up the worship team. Kind Father, we, um, we do ask that you would help this word to sink into our hearts that we would hear the fullness of what you have to say for us. That we would see ourselves as as part of your, your greater story that gives us life and purpose and redemption even in the midst of suffering and pain. And Father, I, I ask even for those now who are in the midst of suffering, by your Spirit, Breathe comfort into their lives. Meet them. Bring joy in the midst of their time. Use them for your purposes. And Lord, create in us a people pure and blameless, children of God in the midst of a crooked and warped generation. Lord, and in all things we ask, Bring glory to your name. Bring glory to the Son. Bring glory to the Spirit, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.